Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Yo. 50 years of hip-hop. 50 years of hip-hop from Listener Power, KEXP. Yo, this is 50 Years of Hip Hop. I'm Larry Mizell Jr. This week, we're taking you back to 1983, the release of the kung fu film Shaolin and Wu-Tang, and its influence on the iconic New York hip hop collective, the Wu-Tang Clan. I joined KEXP's Janice Headley for a discussion about Asian influences in hip hop and the difference between appreciation and appropriation. Janice kicks us off with some background on the film. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, kung fu films were experiencing a heyday here in the United States. Not only were they dominating the grindhouse theaters from Hollywood to Times Square, but you could catch them on TV, usually on the weekends, under a series name like Kung Fu Theater or Black Belt Afternoon. In 1983, a new film from Hong Kong hit the streets, titled Shaolin and Wu-Tang. The movie captures the rivalry between two martial arts schools. The Shaolin, one of the oldest, largest, and most famous kung fu, and the Wu-Tang, a style of Chinese martial arts focused on sword fighting, named for the Wu-Tang Mountains. A decade after its initial release, Shaolin and Wu-Tang opened at a grindhouse cinema on Manhattan's 42nd Street. In the audience were Robert Dix and Russell Jones, later to adopt the monikers RZA and Old Dirty Bastard. Along with their friend Gary Grice, a.k.a. Jizza, they would go on to form the highly influential hip-hop collective, the Wu-Tang Clan. Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with! Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with! In 1993, Wu-Tang Clan released their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers. The title borrows from two other kung fu films, 1973's Enter the Dragon and 1978's The 36 Chamber of Shaolin. But the collective drew influence not just from movie titles, but from kung fu movies themselves. Throughout their tracks, they sampled the English dub dialogue, the score, and kung fu terminology, like tiger style. Tiger style. They renamed their hometown of Staten Island, New York, Shaolin. They adopted film characters for their new aliases, like crew members Master Killa and Ghostface Killa. And they adopted the Eastern philosophies they picked up from kung fu movies. Riza even released a book titled The Tao of Wu. But at what point does appreciation of Asian culture become appropriation? Is there a line? And if so, do the Wu-Tang Clan cross it? For this roundtable discussion, we're joined by KEXP staff and DJs like Larry Mizell Jr. Afternoon show host and creative director of editorial here at KEXP. Mike Ramos. I'm a DJ on KEXP. Do like an overripe variety mix. Also, I got my start kind of covering on streets, downs, and stuff. Gabriel Teodros. I'm the early host. I host a show every weekday, 5 to 7 a.m. 
an associate music director. Sometimes I help out with podcasts with these lovely people. And content producer, Martin Douglas. I write for the website. I contribute audio pieces to Sound Division. And I offer my sometimes very strong opinions to these roundtables. For this roundtable, we were blessed to be joined by two very special guests. Sophia Chang, author of the memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room. A pioneer in the hip-hop industry, Sophia managed A Tribe Called Quest, Raphael Sadiq, Q-Tip, and members of Wu-Tang Clan, such as RZA, Jizza, and Old Dirty Bastard. I was the first Asian woman in hip-hop. I'm closely associated with Wu-Tang, and then I did Shaolin Kung Fu, and then I moved into screenwriting and authorship and public speaking. And Jeff Chang, no relation, journalist and historian and author of the award-winning 2005 book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation. Jeff is currently working on a book about Bruce Lee. I'm a listener down here in the Bay Area, and just super stoked to be able to be here to talk about one of the greatest crews of all time. So just to start, who here has seen the movie Shaolin and Wu-Tang? And did you watch it because of the Wu-Tang Clan? I did watch it because of the Wu-Tang Clan. I think I, you know, I grew up with a lot of the Kung Fu movies on TV and stuff like that. And I grew up in Honolulu. Um, and this is the type of stuff that was always on um, in, you know, my grandfather's house and my uncle's places and that kind of thing. But by 83, I mean, I was a little bit older then um, and had probably moved on to to other things so i would have missed it the first time it came around but after wu-tang uh came out definitely it was one of those things oh wow we got to find out all about this and yeah i mean i i got to go back to the movie because of this and it's just it's just as good as it ever was it's amazing uh the choreography everything the story itself too actually super dope super super dope it holds up for sure yeah i've definitely seen Shaolin Wu-Tang, and it absolutely happened because of 36 Chambers, for sure. That kind of, like, reconnected me with a really early love of Saturday, Sunday morning Kung Fu movies on, like, KTLA or something like that back in the day. They really opened that up and and made me, uh, gave me a, a lifelong appreciation of the form. I've seen Shaolin versus Wu-Tang because of the, the Wu-Tang Clan. I've seen Five Deadly Venoms because of the Wu-Tang Clan. I've seen Master of the Flying Guillotine because of Wu-Tang Clan. Like, all of those movies, like, have this cultural embodiment for me as associated with this group. So, yeah, I, um, there was a period when I was a teenager where me and my friends, like, basically studied these movies because of what we heard on Wu-Tang Records. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say kind of the same thing. I went through the whole thing. Shaolin versus Wu-Tang, uh, you know, Five Venoms, Lone Wolf and Cub from like the Jizza Liquid Swords intro. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I remember even, you know, delving into the genre, just watching a bunch of random movies and I was watching one Duel of Death. And that was like Triumph sample. There it is right there. Like that beginning little like part of the Triumph song, the, that beat. I was like, oh, you know, there it is right there. Of course, that's where they got it. I definitely through like several periods where I was kind of just digging into all these cultural works because of Wu-Tang stuff and uh, definitely put me onto a lot. 
I just wanted to add, I want to thank Martin for mentioning uh, the flying guillotine because man, that, that was like such a, that was like a scary movie when I was real little, I wasn't supposed to watch. And it was like lived in my head forever. And when I heard uh, RZA invoke that on 36 chambers, I was just like, that took me to such a place. And that's just the power uh, those cats have. And I think they're one of the most adept pop culture, just mixers of all time. Uh, for sure. Shaolin shadow boxing and the Wu Tang sword style. If what you say is true, the Shaolin and the Wu Tang could be dangerous. Do you think your Wu Tang sword can defeat me? On guard, I'll let you try my Wu Tang style. Sophia, in your memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, you talk about how the members of the Wu-Tang Clan actually helped you appreciate your own Asian culture. Look, I mean, I was born in 1965. I came of age in the 70s, right? So I was very much, and I, I'm a first-gen Asian immigrant. I was very much a yellow girl in a white world who wanted to be white. And when people say, why would you want to be white? My answer is, why the f*** would I not? Why wouldn't I? Everything I f***ing see, every image of power, beauty, allure, intelligence, all of that is all whiteness. And here I am on the outside, so I want to be white. So it was Wu-Tang, it was hip-hop, and then more surgically, it was Wu-Tang that even opened the door to the possibility of being proud of my heritage where I was embarrassed about it. I was embarrassed about my parents' names. I was embarrassed about my parents' accents. I was embarrassed by our food. I mean, I wholesale rejected my culture. And then here I go through this chamber of Wu-Tang Clan who were basically like, your folks, broadly Asia, right, are f***ing dope. And it's amazing. And so it was, I mean, I didn't watch any Kung Fu movies. I didn't study Taekwondo. I'm Korean. I didn't study Taekwondo, none of that. And absolutely, it was Wu-Tang that made me interested not only in Kung Fu movies, but also in the Hong Kong action movies. And John Woo was my favorite director. And Chow Yun-Fat, my soon-to-be future husband um, in my head, is my favorite actor. That just sparked something for me, Sophia. And that kind of like uh, something outside of uh, your own native culture, pointing you back towards home in a way that is really profound. Um my brother Ishmael Butler of uh, Big World Planets, Shabazz Palaces, you know, he sampled uh, Mizell Brothers stuff on the second Diggable record. And, uh, you know, I was, he, my dad was in my life. I was mostly raised by my mom, but I didn't have a super deep appreciation for the work of the Mizells. You know what I'm saying? And when I, but I loved Diggable. So when I heard that and I saw the names of my uncles and my dad and the credits, it jacked my head up and it made me go to it and uh, really connect to it on a different level and gave me a different kind of appreciation. So that really took me there, Sophia. How do you personally define appreciation versus appropriation? And while I think I already know the answer, in your opinions, where do the Wu-Tang Clan fall? I'll talk about cultural appropriation. My very smart friend, Kevin Brightneal, he teaches critical race theory at Babson. He has a, an acronym for it, DEE, denigration, exploitation, and erasure. And that's kind of my barometer of it. Obviously, I don't think that Wu-Tang did any of that. I think they did quite the opposite. And in terms of cultural appropriation, I can't put a fine point on it. 
because again, I'm not smart enough to talk about it and I'm not a sociologist, but it feels really different to me when white people do it and people of color do it. It does, you know? So Migos doing a song called um, Stir Fry. Yeah, you know what? There are things that kind of make me go. But I watched the video that they shot in Hong Kong with an Asian director or um, is it Nikki that did Chun-Li? I look at that video and I look at kind of all of the Asian stuff and everything and I kind of go, ah. But I'm telling you, I feel different than Miley Cyrus did. No question. No question in my mind. There is something about the difference between the imperialists and the colonialists, right? And the dominant culture doing it um, than when folks of color do, do it. And I don't actually know if that's right, but that's sure is how I feel. And it's absolutely about power, right? It's about history. It's, it's, it's about history. And that's, that's as sophisticated as I can get about it. I feel like you really nailed it right there when i think of cultural appropriation i think of uh um um was 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 your girls from no doubt uh, gwen stefani i think of madonna i mean that's 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 dead on and you talk about the your guys dee acronym like that was active in in how like madonna spread these ideas that she pilfered you know i i got into a conversation with a cat uh gay brother a few years ago and he was just like, we were talking about like ball culture or something. And he was just like, yeah, that's all because of Madonna or something. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, he was like, no, like Madonna really put on for queer culture and like queer people of color. And I was like, you never heard of Sylvester? Have you never seen like Paris is burning? What's wrong with you? And Madonna like did that, I think consciously to a degree. She really erased these, these, the people from these elements as she used them to like burnish her style and um, you know, like maybe uh, uh, really cement her maybe reputation in certain circles. So I, it, it is about power and it always is like uh, punching down when I see appropriation. When Wu-Tang did it, they had, you know, if you look at the Method Man video, they had fucking Kung Fu swords, you know, and there was no part of me then and now Right. In retrospect, that makes me go, oh, because it never felt like a accessory to me. It never felt like a temporary tattoo that at night, this is how I feel with that bitch Gwen Stefani, right? That she would just like, she can scrub off at night. It never felt that way with Wu Chang. It was so deeply ingrained and written into the DNA of them. To Sophia's comment about, it feels different when it comes from people of color because I feel the same way. It feels real different. And I was asking myself, why is that? And I'm reminded of a quote my friend Thamori says. I always think about, she said that solidarity starts with knowing yourself. Wu-Tang was big on knowledge of self. That's something you hear in every song. You know what I'm saying? For people of color, no matter where you're from, whether you're black, whether you, you know, Whatever country you come from, an immigrant, native, you stand on a culture and there's things in your culture that are clear. White people in America are the only group of people that gave up their idea of culture in exchange for power. Period. And I think because of that, yeah. you have a whole group of people that are grasping at any form of culture because there is a void that they gave up, that they want to. It's a very human thing to want to feel connected and to feel like a part of culture. But also because of power, right? There's a there, there's this culture of entitlement that they're in. Like they're they're entitled to everything. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's a it's a lot of stuff that white people have to work on 
in themselves to get to know themselves to get to a point where they can actually appreciate and give reverence because I think there's a level of self-knowledge that you have to have to appreciate and show reverence without appropriating. There's one thing that I want to say about um, Shaolin and Wu-Tang and those movies in general. I'm sure a lot of people know this, but there are probably a lot of folks that don't. Wu-Tang Clan wasn't in those, into those movies just for the action. There were themes that resonated with them very deeply. Brotherhood, loyalty, few against many, right? It's, I, I think it's a reflection of how they felt about each other as brothers. You know, that they did feel like they were in a fight, that they did come up through a lot of shit together, that they really faced a lot of things um, together like our heroes do in those um, in those movies. My dad grew up in the Bronx, so I heard stories about the one dollar kung fu matinees that everybody in his neighborhood would go to and running up on the Wu-Tang style they adapted the martial arts aesthetic to essentially say that their rap style was the highest form of combat. It wraps itself up into like, we're battling in the park, we're battling in rec rooms. This style is the highest form of this martial art. And so I thought that was a, that was always a very interesting way to show appreciation to the form. The reason that that your dad was exposed to those films in the first place is because of segregation and racism, actually. These movies, you know, uh, were able to break in because he had these grindhouse distributors and they distributed to like three different kinds of of theaters and they're all in the same places, right? Porn theaters, black theaters, and Chinese theaters, right? They were all in the inner city. And during the summer, like, that's like the place where you got air conditioning, you can hang out all day, right? So, so the folks who are fans of black exploitation movies go to the Go Fu movies and they see the same types of like connections between like Soph was talking about earlier, like, you know, these whatever, these Confucian, Taoist, and Zen like principles and values and these ideas of loyalty and brotherhood, right? And all of that stuff like comes together. That's that that starts creating like these these worldviews that folks can kind of share with each other and stuff. Years later, when they're really trying to pit us against each other, right? Because that's what racism will do. Does it'll segregate us? It'll make us fight each other, right? It'll make us compete with each other. And then you get these cultural movements that take competition and put into a positive type of thing where we're kind of pushing each other further, right? And Wu-Tang comes out where it's like competition gets turned into this beautiful cultural building type of thing. I just remember, you know, when I was super young listening to them, they were interweaving all these other like teachings that, you know, from the nation of the gods and the earth, the 5% or stuff like that was in there almost just as heavy as, you know, these little sound clips from these grindhouse films. And uh, I just remember, you know, hearing about that kind of stuff for the from, from Wu-Tang for the first time and, and you know, kind of learning about those kind of principles and philosophies as a direct result of that and i think that was you know like just kind of that moment that era it was so much cultural exchange especially between you know black and asian black and brown kind of like communities because you know my grandpa was from the philippines all that he had to live in 
the South Seattle. They had to live in the Central District where it was mostly, you know, either Black or immigrant families. And yeah, so I just kind of feel like that kind of resonated with me a lot when I was first listening to them, that kind of just element of cultural exchange. We're all in that together at the same bus stops, going to the same stores, going to the same schools, whatever. And, you know, it was just really cool and really different to see that back. And I think that's definitely what stuck with me when I first, you know, kind of were listening to them. The conversation is really interesting to me, but the thing that I don't like is when we start freezing things. Like, you can't you can't ever do GoFu because you're not Chinese. Like, no, I would want, you know, Rizzo knows more GoFu than I do. The most, I think, I would wager Chinese do. You know, Rizzo's been deep in it and stuff. He He's studied. And, and here's me, you know, like trying to basically talk about black freedom culture because of what I learned from hip hop. So I, you know, I, I just subscribe to that old hip hop thing, which is like, if it works, like it works. And mainly it should be about encouraging a dialogue or a multi-log or folks having uh, a way to be able to get to a higher understanding of each other. But that's the whole piece, right? What you said about denigration, exploitation, extraction, erasure, like, you know, that's, that's. It's, but it's ill. I'm also going to make this other argument, right? One of the early hip hop records that's not recognized as a hip hop record was this record by Malcolm McLaren called Duck Rock. Two Buffalo gals go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. 1983. Right, which, exactly, which, 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 hey, we're on the 83 thing. That's great. I'm glad we got back around to the, <laughs> to the peg. But like, Duck Rock to me still is one of those things that that endures despite the fact that this guy was so obviously trying to denigrate exploit and erase like the merengue culture from dominican republic but oh, really? the yoruba the yoruba of chants and the the santeria chants and not to mention like the world famous supreme team you know and uh and hip-hop and you know all of that kind of stuff right like he was trying to do all of that he was trying to but the culture exceeded that you know what i mean and that's why the stuff like you can hear it now and listen to this like south african jive music and just be like yo that's the my hotel of queens getting down you know mm-hmm. getting down and and that exposed me and made me want to become part of the anti-apartheid movement just as much as any of the other stuff did so i feel like you know that's part of the weird thing about culture is like sometimes folks can have bad intent or not even bad intent but they just they could just be having privilege, the white privilege of being able to erase stuff and the stuff still shines through, right? And it's still like the black freedom culture pieces of it still shine through. Like the the root stuff about, you know, Asian culture will still uh, shine through. And and that's that's like really important because we got to be able to keep these knowledges going uh, to the next generation and stuff, so. Like, you can tell when motherfuckers are on safari and have their pith helmet on and, like, Malcolm McLaren is like that, but he's also such a kind of a brilliant marketer and processor that he came up with a, with, that's a great record, you know what I mean? And it's like how a lot of people outside of New York are familiar with uh, the Supreme Team, you know, for one. But, man, this this conversation has touched on so much, so <laughs> close to home, you know, from the, like, I grew up in, in South Central. I left L.A. right before the uprising. I got disenchanted with hip hop when I moved to Seattle and saw all these white kids appropriating <laughs> big time. I was like, I don't, and, and I was coming from like the jungle, you know what I mean? And I don't, I'm not like metaphor. I mean, the neighborhood, the jungle. 
and yeah. and Crenshaw and I wasn't hype on that. I didn't think it was fresh that, that these were the environs that me and my family lived in. So when I saw these kids appropriating it, I was like, F that. And I remember seeing some rock videos and I was like, damn, I, I saw a spin doctor's video and they had a black bassist. And I was like, damn, these motherfuckers are having fun. And there's a brother there. And I was just like, damn, I, uh -huh. we deserve to have fun like that. What the f So I, I started listening to rock hardcore, but you know what brought me back to hip hop? Enter the 36 chambers. Shame on the nook who tried to run game on the nook. Who's buck wild with the trigger? Shame on the nook who tried to run game on the nook. Stop, get up, get up. Hut one, hut two, hut three, hut. Old dirty back. Cut. Styles unbreakable, shatterproof. To the young youth, you wanna get gun? This piece was written and produced by Janice Headley. Mixing and mastering by Roddy Nickpour. Thanks to our panelists. From right here at KEXP, Martin Douglas, Gabriel Teodros, and Mike Ramos. An extra special thanks to our guests, Jeff Chang and Sophia Chang. Next week, we're taking you back to a golden era in Seattle hip-hop. That's right, we're talking about the compilation era of the late 90s. Thanks for listening, and thanks also for your financial support of this show. You're the one that keeps these conversations going every week. You can become an amplifier anytime at kexp.org slash 50hiphop. I'm Larry Mizell Jr. It's 50 Years of Hip Hop from listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters. Until next week, much love.